You may have heard someone say something like this to you. Maybe, maybe not, but bear with me. Uh, Maybe you've heard someone say to you, you look just like your dad. You walk just like, you're the spitting, you walk just like your dad. Uh, Maybe you've heard someone say to you, you've got your mother's eyes. That seems to be a thing I hear of got your mother's eyes um or you or you talk you talk just like your mum we inherit things don't we we inherit of course our genetic makeup and sometimes we inherit behavior and habits as well don't we and sometimes we get a bit sentimental about this you walk just like your dad i see him in you this kind of thing um, but it's not always a good thing is it perhaps you've got your granddad's temper Perhaps you've got your auntie's sass, or maybe even your uncle's lip. Some things we wish we didn't inherit. Well, here we are in 1 Kings, and we've seen in these last few weeks, a man called Jeroboam becomes king of Israel, father of a new nation in the north, Israel, ten tribes, uh, as opposed to the two tribes in the south called Judah. It's a new nation, you'd hope great things for it. But it's not started well. Jeroboam invents false religion and leads the nation into idolatry. And so as we get to our passage this morning, our question is, will one bad apple spoil the bunch? Will what's going on in the north in Israel affect what's going down in the south in Judah? And will what Father Jeroboam has done Will that go down through the generations? Or will he just be one bad apple, as it were? Will Jeroboam's mistake really flow down? Well, the answer in our passage is, you betcha. You betcha it will. You betcha it will. Bear with me, sorry, I've lost my place. (laughs) These things happen. If Jeroboam's sin last time uh, was like a cut, it was like a graze that becomes an infection. Well, this week we're going to see how that sin, that idolatry, it's become like gangrene. It's an infection that spreads and spreads and spreads. Things unravel pretty thick and fast. So our passage this morning is going to be quite serious. It's going to remind us of the seriousness of sin. But also, as we see things unravelling, we're going to be asking the question, where is God in all this? Where is God in a world infested, as it were, with idols? What is God doing? And there we'll find some hope. So, come with me to our passage. Last time we were following Jeroboam's activity up in the north in the first half of chapter 14. Now the writer of 1 Kings draws our attention towards what is going on in the south. There's a bad king up north, King Jeroboam, but what's going on meanwhile down south? Well, down south, two things we see. What's going on down south? Decay and grace. Decay and grace. Come with me to chapter 14 and verse 21. King Rehoboam is brought into view. And how does the country fare under him? Well, look at verse 22. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked the Lord to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all their fathers had done. 
Judah now, down in the south, is falling into evil and idolatry too, right? And why? Did you see why? Look at verse 23. For they also, they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim. And notice the language there. They also, just like their fathers had done before, and just like Jeroboam up north, the brothers down the south start building idols. They also do it. And with it comes, verse 23 and verse 24, perversion of worship, the ruin of ecology, and the corruption of sex on sale. Judah becomes like the nations around them. Judah gets caught up in wars. We see that as well, of course. You might notice when it was read that Egypt invaded. And the only way Judah can stop it is to sell the gold in the temple, as if to buy off their enemies. And even the king's shields, which used to be gold, have swapped for bronze. Judah is a real faded glory now. If, uh, if Judah in the glory days was like Disneyland under Solomon, well now, sadly, it's a, sorry if this offends you, now it's a kind of clapped out sand down uh, with, a, with a red light district and idol worship to boot. The glory is fading. The kingdom is rotting and decaying. We see here decay. There's spiritual decay in the kingdom. Now, just notice again, why why was that? What was the language there in in verse 23? They also built the high places. I think it's worth reflecting on this. Was there a sense in which King Rehoboam thought he might be missing out? So we also need to build high places. He didn't have the idols that Jeroboam had and Egypt had and and Syria had, so, so we better have them too. We need the high places. Did Rehoboam suffer from a massive case of FOMO, fear of missing out. You just want to be normal like everyone else. All the other nations around them wouldn't be the first time in the Bible that's happened, would it? Bear with this aside, I think it's important. I think we in our world too are sometimes tempted to obsess over what we don't have. I say I'm single. Or, 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 or I, I'm uncultured, I don't have the experiences other people have had. Or, or I don't have this status or these experiences. And we tell ourselves that what we're missing in life is relationships, is, is sex, is power, is money. And we may be a Christian and go, I'm trusting in God, but then I think I'm fe- I'm, I must be missing out. I need something else. Do you see that? It's going on here, isn't it? You see how dangerous a path that is to go down. These idols are not God. They're just the rest of creation. They're just bits of wood. Asherah poles. All of creation, relationships, sex, travel, experiences, it all points to the one true God. And if you have him, you can never miss out. He's the one from whom all of these things have come. You never miss out with him. How foolish Rehoboam is that he copies what had gone on before and what's going on up north. How foolish he is. And sin, notice, is just that pervasive. Don't think it's not. Sin is that pervasive. It catches on. The decay spreads. That's Rehoboam. His son rules next. A guy called Abijam or Abijam. I think uh, that was right, Abijam. Um, Chapter 15. His mother was called uh, Maka. And what's the verdict on him? Well, the kings of Judah ought to be like David. 
But again, Abijam is not. Look at 15 verse 3. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David, his father. You see, the infection continues to spread. Idol worship and the evil that goes with it is passing across borders and down through the generations. It's so dreadful that we fear for the worst when the next king is announced. In 15 verse 9, a king called Asa. Look at him being announced in verse 9. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign, or Asa began to reign over Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maka, the daughter of, of, of Abishalom. So we've had Rehoboam, son of Solomon. Now we've had Abijam, and next his brother, son of the same mother. And we, we fear, a sense of dread comes into our hearts at this point. Oh, no, no, no. Not, please, no. Not more, not more of the same. We can't have not another one. And it's amazing. I think it's a shock in the passage. Because look what the Lord does, verse 11. Asa comes along, and what do we hear about him? 15 verse 11. And he did what was evil and walked in the ways of his fathers. No, no, somehow, no, he doesn't. Look at verse 11. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David, his father, had done. Asa, or Asa, does not walk in the way of his father. He turns the tide. Here's a king, and you'd never expect it, but a reforming king comes along. He removes the false religion. He even removes uh, uh, his mother-in-law, the, the queen mother, um, for her dodgy influence. He's a good king. Now, he doesn't get everything right. Um, his reforms don't go far enough. He leaves the high places in, in place, but he does maintain the temple, and his foreign policy isn't great. Um, to stop a war, he becomes bedfellows with Damascus. It's not great. But this king here, Asa, does the job. See, here, when the flow of apostasy and evil feels unrelenting, what is the Lord doing? What is the Lord doing in an idol-infested world? Well, the Lord breaks the flow, do you see? He holds back the time. He does not allow bad king after bad king after bad king after bad king. He shows grace. He slows the infection. See, there's a bad king up north in Jeroboam, and down south everything seems to be spreading until, guess what? Or breaks the flow. He shows grace. There is patience with this kingdom. It's remarkable. Judah's infected. Judah's gone off the rails. Let me ask you how you would treat a child who went off the rails. I think our culture treats children like that quite badly. <laughs> I think many tend to vacate or abdicate. True, isn't it? In our land, there are many absent fathers. Simply walk away from families, or they stick around, but they're absent, right? But look here what the Lord is doing. He doesn't walk away and vacate and leave them to their mess. And he doesn't abdicate and stay there and just let them get on with it. Though he could, and we could not begrudge him, could we? But no, the Lord stays, he is patient, he shows grace. Here, in this surprising reforming king, he is giving Judah another chance. He is patient. He is gracious. He is kind. 
So here's idol worship. It's spreading like gangrene. And it's like that in our world too, isn't it? But before you sign yourself over to an attitude of resignation about the whole thing, notice how the Lord provides Asa to reform and slow the tide. Friends, we must notice here the seriousness of what's going on. There is decay here, isn't there? There's sin and idolatry and mess and evil. And it does get worse. And this passage should make us take sin more seriously. Absolutely. But it should also show us God's amazing grace in this backdrop. One Bible commentator reflecting on this passage puts it like this. He says, we should see here not just how God's grace is greater than sin, but also how God's grace is far more stubborn than our sin. He keeps going with Judah. He gives her more and more time to repent. It may well be that the idolatrous ways inherited from Jeroboam, inherited from the fathers, they're hard to break, constantly copied generation after generation. Well, if idolatry is a stubborn problem, and friends, it is, isn't it? God the Father is a stubborn adversary. His ways are even harder to break. He is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing grace and justice. In an idol-infested world, where is God? He is showing grace. Maybe today you feel yourself struggling with idolatry. Maybe you feel stuck. It is tough, isn't it, living in a world of idols? But just notice God's behavior here. God sustains his people. He provides moments of peace. He holds back the tide. And he does that, of course, here most conclusively in the fact that he never lets Judah fall completely into idolatry and completely into a mess and get completely ransacked and lose the line of kings. In Judah, there's always a Davidic king, which means there's always hope of Jesus. That the Lord Jesus might come for you and me. You see, the Lord preserved history from idols. That the Lord Jesus might come for you and for me to save us from idols. Don't lose hope in an idol-infested world. Don't lose hope as you battle with those false trusts and those false loves. The Lord who has shown grace to you in Jesus is with you. He preserved Israel in the Old Testament. Do you not think he will preserve his church this day too? There's decay and grace. God sets up a good king down south, King Asa. But now the camera angle kind of wants to shift again. There's a good king now down south. Well, what's going on, meanwhile, up north? What's going on up north? Well, there's decay and judgment. Decay and judgment. Up north, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, reigns after him. Uh, In chapter 15, verse 25 and onwards. What's the verdict on his reign? Look at verse 26. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. After Jeroboam, his son Nadab reigns only, only two years. And this is because you might remember from last week, there was a prophecy that the Lord was going to end the line of Jeroboam. It was going to come to a conclusion. And here we see that happen. So Nadab follows Jeroboam and he's out to war. And a guy called Bar Asher 
uh, kills him and becomes king instead. And he sets about wiping out the male line of Jeroboam. All we're told according to the judgment of God. Decay, isn't it? Isn't it messy? And it's the judgment of God as well, of course, isn't it? Now, you might be thinking, wow, that's messy. How do I deal with that? But you might also be thinking, wow, what a relief. Because Jeroboam's, because Jeroboam created a huge evil. And now we've got past him. And now we've got past all of his family. They're, they're, they're out of the picture. So maybe things will be better now. <laughs> well, not quite. Baasha has uh, fulfilled the word of the Lord, but it's not all good. Follow me to chapter 16 and verse 2. Because the Lord raises up the prophet Jehu to speak to Baasha, who says there will be judgment on Baasha too. Why? Because I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel. And you, again, again, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins. There's going to be judgment. You'd think getting rid of Jeroboam and all his lot would mean you'd have an alternative to Jeroboam, something good and better now. But no, doesn't matter. There's now a new dynasty and a new family. The infection spread, hasn't it? He rules just like Jeroboam. And so the Lord says to Barasha, well, I'm afraid your line is going to have to come to an end as well. He'll face Jeroboam's, Jeroboam's fate. And it's all summarized in 16 verse 7. Come with me to 16 verse 7. Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Barasher and his house, both because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, in being like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. Barasher had put Jeroboam to an end, and it was good that Jeroboam was brought to an end. But Barasha here we see becomes like Jeroboam and so he's judged. And also he gets judged for sorting out Jeroboam. Now you say, that's not fair. I mean, he was just fulfilling what God had said. Doesn't seem very fair all this. This judgment like like that. Um, Bible commentator Dale Ralph Davis tells a helpful anecdote anecdote at this point. I I think this is helpful. Um, He speaks of an incident at the end of World War II. Um, It's 1945, and the Nazis are in their last gasp to kind of hold on to power. And one um, Luftwaffe general is driving to Berlin for the night briefing. And overhead, he sees the planes fly, the Luftwaffe, and he thinks, oh, that's good. And he's at the nighttime briefing, and he hears the Luftwaffe report. Um, We've had a successful attack on some Soviet tanks. As the briefing goes on, they discover that... They did have a successful attack, but it wasn't on Soviet tanks. It was German tanks. The Luftwaffe had blown up their own kind. And you see, there's something like that going on here. Barasha is an evil king who has wiped out another evil king. God can use evil kings to wipe out other evil kings, and he can judge them both the same for their evil. He can turn evil against itself. Evil is only a servant of Almighty God. You see, God can bring judgment. God is in control. 
Idolatry is not running out of control. God's in control. So, just like Jeroboam's son only reigned two years, Barash's son, Elah, on, on here in verse 16, verse 8, he only reigns uh, two years. We get a little tale about um, Elah, or however you want to pronounce his name. <laughs> he, gets, uh, he gets drunk, we're told, in 16, verse 9. And Zimri, who's head of the chariots, so I suppose he's a bit like head of the RAF. I suppose that's what chariots were. And he seizes the opportunity, and Zimri uh, wipes out Elah. And in fact, he wipes out the whole of Barash's line. So Barash does follow Jeroboam's fate, and Zimri fulfills the word of God. God does bring judgment here. But the decay unravels still further. You'd hope now, okay, the military are in control. Okay, so it's not these wicked families of Jeroboam and Barasha. Maybe now things will be better with the military. And uh, some of you are giving me that look. No, no, Ollie. Um, And you'd be right, of course. Zimri is in charge, but his reign only lasts seven days. And we're told actually in seven days he's still answerable for a lot because he still walks in the way of Jeroboam. And so again, there's judgment. Zimri uh, has had his coup and... uh, the leader of the army thinks, well, I'll have a coup then. (laughs) And Omri takes out Zimri, and Omri's on the throne. There's a little civil war, but Omri takes control. And on all accounts, on many accounts, Omri doesn't look too bad, some would say. Under him, Israel seems to thrive a bit. He builds, you get this account of how he builds some metabolizer tracts of land. He builds the hill of Samaria. Apparently, according to the other secular sources, um, Israel does thrive a bit and becomes known as the land of Omri, under Omri. But for all his great achievements, what does our passage say of him? Well, look at 16, verse 25. Omri, you achieved a lot? No. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all that were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. So see, here we are with uh, Omri. And we're quite a long way now from Jeroboam, aren't we? Jeroboam's line, Barash's line. Now we're at Omri. But there is now more evil than ever. Sin really is that pervasive. And the final king in our passage, Omri's son Ahab, cements the picture of decay for us. By now, we shouldn't be surprised, should we? Look at the description of Ahab, 16 verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all that were before him. You see, idolatry and evil, it's it's spreading, but now it's like it's almost exponential. Omri did more than before him. And now Ahab does more than all that were before him. It gets worse and worse and worse. He's got Jezebel who brings Baal worship into the land. That's going to be a big problem. We'll see that in the rest of 1 Kings. And it all comes to a pretty sorrowful conclusion. Notice the very final note. Verse 34 of chapter 16. In his days, in Ahab's days, what happened? Just a little side note here, what happens? A guy called Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. The city of Jericho comes back. And Hiel, he he laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his Firstborn and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sigub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. In the days of Ahab, the wicked city of Jericho is rebuilt. 
Now, Joshua had foretold in Joshua chapter 6 that you did not want to rebuild Jericho. If you attempted to rebuild Jericho, it would cost you the life of your children. So don't do it. Don't go anywhere near it. And here is this guy with Ahab here. And the gods of Baal say, if you're building a new city, you need to sacrifice your children for its future. And he does it. It is a tragic, sick, sad um, episode in the life of Israel. There is decay, isn't there? There is decay. Things seem to get darker and darker and worse and worse. There's decay and scenes of judgment. Of course, the good news is that against this background of great evil, God is going to send out a great prophet, uh, the prophet Elijah. More of that next time. But for now, I, I, I'd like us just to notice, look, it, it is getting worse and worse here, isn't it? These evil kings are kind of pushing it with the Lord more and more, aren't they? More evil than before, pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And again, before we despair, notice what the Lord has been doing in the grand scheme. We've had these little pictures, haven't we, of judgment. Judgment of Jeroboam, judgment of Baasha. If we think it's going to run wild forever, history tells us, no, it won't. These little pictures of judgment we've had along the way are foreshadowings of the great judgment to come. Evil will be done away with in its totality. In an idol-infested world, we can be confident that the Lord will bring judgment. Don't despair. Well, where does this leave us? Some final reflections on our passage. It's a stark picture of sin, isn't it? I think it warns us then of the mess we can get into. Judah is led by evil men. And people follow them. And fall for their evil. I think this picture tells us to get real with ourselves. That in the right conditions, any of us are capable of anything. That's, isn't that, isn't that, doesn't that jump out at you? They, they all... You'd think someone would have some common sense and go, no, 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 stop this. But people go with it, don't they? This is a wake-up call to us, isn't it? Of how susceptible we are to sin and rebellion. It's an encouragement to get serious with sin, isn't it? I think this passage is, is deliberately showing us how Israel got into such trouble. It's showing us the spiritual decline. So that we're warned, so that we can repent, so that we can turn away. I think one of the things that stands out for for me so clearly here is how the sin and idolatry, it just, it seems to be thoughtless copying and repeating. Is that me? It just seems they just, only walked in the ways of his father. He just did again. Thoughtless copying and repeating. The kings keep copying what's gone on before. Now, friends, how often do we copy things without even thinking? And so we inherit idols. They do it like that, we say. And it appeals. And we copy. We swim in waters, don't we, of an idol-infested world, as it were. And we're naive if we, if we don't think we'll drink it in. We're naive if we think, I could never become a product of my culture. Well, it very easily can happen. That's an encouragement then for us to remember that we have the sword of the Spirit. That cuts through these things. The word of God. 
And we need to steep ourselves in it, isn't it? Because it's actually the word of God that comes and calls the people out of it. That's what we're going to see, Elijah, in a few weeks' time. It's the word of God that will call us from idols. Let's steep ourselves in, in the Bible. It's also a reminder, I think, that we have got a great help in the church. The church is the counterculture, if you like. It's where we can form new habits and behavior, following the true king and not idols. I'd like to ask you this morning, do you think you're taking full advantage of the new society that you are in? Where we get shaped to live for the one true God and not go after idols into horrible mess. See, our world, just like theirs, is steeped in idols, isn't it? It is full of similar evils, but we can have great encouragement, great comfort, great hope. Because we know that God is showing grace and we know that God is at work in judgment too. He is in control and we can place our trust in King Jesus. Now you might say at this point, really Ollie? You're asking me to put my hope in another king after all the kings we've seen here today? Really? Why would we do that? And that's the thing, isn't it? Bad kings can do great damage. But what if we had on the throne, not an idol-worshipping king, but a perfect king? A king who could lead us in freedom to the one true God. Wouldn't that change everything? Friends, that is just what God means to do. He is bringing about a new kingdom, a new king to establish a new kingdom in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see hints of it all the way through this passage. You may not have noticed it, but it was in our first verse. 14 verse 21, even as Rehoboam rules, where does he rule? The city that the Lord has chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. God had put his very presence in the temple in Jerusalem. He was not giving up on them. And then another evil king came in Judah, Abijam. And what do we say? see there? 15 verse 4, Abijam is able to rule in the line of David. Why? Because nevertheless, 15 verse 4, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord was going to be faithful to his promise to David to set up an eternal, perfect king on the throne forever. A king like no other. Cut through this passage of decay is the story of a coming king. A perfect king. A king who, when he arrives, doesn't walk like his fathers before him. He isn't more of the curse and more of the gangrene. No, he's the cure. He is the king who drains the infection at the cross and resurrects us from the dead. You see, these kings brought death and decay. False worship multiplied under them. But even so, God was working his plans out. Plans that would find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus, where sin and death and idolatry is put to death nailed to his body on the tree that through his saving death and his victorious resurrection we might find life you see in jesus in jesus only is this story of death and decay brought to an end this is where god is in an an idol infested world putting idols to death in the lord jesus that's where our hope should be in christ crucified for our sin 
draining our disease at the cross, rising to new life, new resurrection life, friends, new idol-free life for all eternity. And that is what the Lord Jesus is doing, reigning on the throne. He is king of all, showing his grace, and one day returning in judgment. He will complete his gracious rescue. He will complete his perfect justice. And until that day, friends, let's lose the idols. Let's lose the wretchedness of these kings and declare anew and with hope to our world, long live the king, King Jesus. Should we pray? Our gracious, loving and heavenly Father, uh, we've seen some pretty dark things in this passage. We've seen afresh the, the pervasiveness of sin. We've seen the decay and the rot, and it grieves us. Father, it may be this morning that some of us just need to see the seriousness of sin afresh. Ask that we would. Father, it may be that some of us living in such a world, have been living in resignation, have let the idols have place in our heart. Father, we ask, would we set them aside and let Jesus rule and be our all in all? We pray, as the Lord Jesus taught us, would your kingdom come and your will be done in our hearts and in our land, we ask. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.